You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are dear to the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to ANUS, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. This is a ten-part series of conversations with Haval Farat, Haval Tekashin and friends from a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Kwamizlo. These conversations provide insight into how they are organising their society, how they are making decisions and how they are defending their zone from aggression from some of the most powerful military empires on the planet. We are confident you will find this series exceptionally interesting, but more importantly, it is the type of news we need today in order to ensure that here in Australia, we continue to act up to create that new society based on egalitarian principles in our heart. Hello everybody, this is the uh, special series, 10-part series with the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a civil diplomacy centre in the Autonomous Administration. And we've been talking to Tekashin and his uh, friends, the Havals, regarding uh, how life is different in this corner of the world. Let's not forget that they are under extreme pressure militarily currently, wedged in between Syria and Turkey in a hostile uh, nation state to the south of them, a, a, a Kurdish state. And this is five million people trying to eke out or dig out or create a new way of living and it's been our pleasure to be able to speak to this civil diplomacy centre. This is one of many in the region and their task is to get their message out to the rest of the world because obviously not being a sovereign nation state, they really have no status as far as the world is concerned, the United Nations, and it's very difficult for them to survive. This is part eight and we're going to look at some interesting things today, not that Every program hasn't been interesting, but my favourite was episode four, Tekashin. Do you remember what that was? Uh, no. What was it? <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> how the old and new coexisted in uh, Ennis. It was quite fascinating, you know. It's not the traditional way. You kill all your enemies and you say, I'm, I'm the boss now, do it this way. But it was fascinating yeah. the way you've resolved, well, attempted to resolve that issue and keep a functioning society. So what particular issues would you like to raise today? Well, I thought I'd talk about something that we haven't talked about yet, which is um, when someone comes, you know, and flies halfway around the world to join a revolution, um, and, you know, you really step into the unknown. So really uh, what that's like is someone coming here. And... and 
of course it will hook into lots of ideological thoughts as well mm. but really you know just day to day how interacting with a, an actual revolution how it is well it's quite interesting what you raise that because we have specific legislation in this country which is called the foreign fighters legislation and we've had mm. we've had individuals Australians who've gone to fight against IS and they've come back home and they've been arrested and prosecuted believe it or not yeah yeah i mean uh, it's quite an extraordinary situation that people find themselves in and they can be jailed for up to 25 years obviously it was uh, designed initially to deal with the IS threat, which obviously you had to deal with in a military sense, but um, it's uh, captured a lot of people who've gone overseas to assist people. So I'm just giving you that background just to give you an idea of uh, how, what the, how the situation is here in Australia. So are there many people from overseas, uh, from outside uh, the Autonomous Administration Zone? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's people that come to fight for ISIS, of course, from mm. Europe and yep. Saudi Arabia and all yep. over the world. And there's, there's plenty of people that come from Europe to um, join the revolution. And a lot of my uh, friends, the British ones, for example, are in prison. You know, and it's like you say, they they make this legislation against ISIS, but then it's rather useful for them, isn't it, to put other people in jail for other reasons. Um, and and like so many of these laws, it plays into the hands of the state for them to just do the control that they want to, least of all, of course, the COVID situation, mm. um, which has allowed them to uh, put more controls in place and things. And of course, we're it, it's not just Syria and Turkey here, we're facing COVID here as well. And we're running on a skeleton staff, as you might say, wow. um, also because of COVID and attempting to mm, mm. get the enormous workload done when so many people are, uh, are in the hospitals. Right. So, on oxygen, so, you know. so your hospitals are now overrun with COVID patients, are they? They are, yes. Right. We're running out of oxygen. Right. And, of course, the as you said earlier, um, because we don't have status in the world, the World Health Organization has given us an incredibly small number of vaccines. I think it was just 90,000 or less. For a population, for a five, million. 5 million people, yeah. 90,000, right. Exactly. So all think, my friends, half of them at least, have COVID at the moment. Right. So what effect is that happening, having on the, on the zone itself? Well, this is one of the... Um, things that you know i noticed when i got here that the culture here plus the fact that there's been a lot of war plus the revolution um people as we've said before people live in the now you know they don't plan ahead wow. it's all in the now yep. and the culture is organized in that way that that's fine everyone lives in the, in the now and it works um and people don't wear seat belts they don't wear motorcycle helmets they all smoke there's, there's very little attention to safety. And when someone gets COVID, they usually just continue smoking and ignore it. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm not saying this is a good policy or anything, no. but you, you, you kind of get sucked into this um, sort of, of culture of, of not worrying about anything, you know, because there's so many enormous things happening in the society and it's actually quite nice to not worry about 
safety in those sorts of ways. Um, although, although, although COVID nineteen is a habit of uh, not discriminating, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so what are you ha- hoping to happen that? If it's got a two percent, two to three percent mortality rate in the West, about one point five percent, I assume your mortality rate there would be much higher because of the lack of, you said, oxygen and health facilities, and it spread very rapidly if people are not taking any precautions. Well, this is the odd thing. Um, until very recently, I think this statistic is from about two months ago. There had been one hundred and eighty-three deaths in total from COVID. Mm. Now, when you multiply that up, taking into account a population of five million, mm. uh, we we have suffered suffered far less deaths than many many. I mean, especially America. You know, America has been an absolute catastrophe yes. um, in terms of the percentage deaths. Um, and I've been trying to work out why that might be. And certainly the population here uh, don't fly away on holiday very much. I don't know if that makes a difference. Mm. Um, uh, stay in their local communities and their local villages more. Mm. Um, I mean, but on the, on the other side, people are incredibly affectionate here. I mean, they're all over each other all the time. The, mm. the men. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. Well, I, think, I think I think the heat helps. Although you yes. come, how cold is your winter, which is coming up, I assume, very soon? Yes, it is exactly. I'm sitting here in a hoodie, a t-shirt, and a very good coat at the moment in right. in my house. Right. <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's freezing now right. at night. It's freezing. Um, so. Quite quickly. Well, that's a very very good uh, um, environment for the spread because people tend to congregate yeah. together in winter and not in summer. So you may find that um, things are going to get very uh, hectic in winter there. So yeah. so obviously death is an everyday reality for people. Well, this is interesting because what, when I, I've lived in a lot of other countries, mm-hmm. um, including Guinea-Bissau in Africa, uh, Budapest, uh, lots of other places, and I always... After a while, I like to try and figure out what my ideas about what it would be like were before I went and then compare them to how it was when I arrived. And I've been doing that for a while. Um, And so I I remembered what I thought it would be like when I came here. Um, And, you know, and this is this is very much formed by the media, of course. Uh, I'd seen pictures of Aleppo and Kobani and the just incredible destruction of those cities. I mean, there's like kilometers of just rubble um, and, you know, kids just wandering around in it. Uh, I'd seen pictures of the fighting um, and you kind of end up, well, I, I, maybe everyone ended up with the impression that um, the Middle East was an incredibly violent place. And in fact, I, I had the impression that uh, the people of the Middle East were very violent people, very hard people. Um, and, and this is the impression that I came with. I, I mean, I'm intelligent enough to know. Uh, I don't think you have to be particularly intelligent to realise that the impression you get from the mainstream media is is likely to be completely wrong. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I didn't come expecting these things. Um, and... The city that I'm in now, and it is amazing that this is such a surprise to everyone, the city that I'm in now has has not been bombed at all. 
there's no rubble all the buildings are intact mm -hmm. the streets are lined with trees and modern cars um, there's internet everywhere cafes the bars down in the center are steel and glass you know new things um, it, it's quite a normal life and when I first got here I was extremely concerned about security um, and what happens when you get here you know you're coming to a revolution it's an extremely well funded very well organized large operation it's been running for 10 years you know it's a, it's a huge operation mm. and um, so you come into a system a, a well organized system and they take care of you they really they really look after you as soon as you arrive you feel like you're in extremely good hands because they're very caring. You know, this is the, actually the people here um, of all ethnic groups. Whenever you meet them, they're extremely caring and very, very uh, welcoming. So it, you feel fine and you get you get taken to a project. Um, and in my case, this was a journalistic project initially. Mm -hmm. um, and you arrive at the house and everyone lives communally um everyone sleeps you know there's there's five or six people sleeping together this is the culture you know it's not just that they don't have enough room this is culture and you eat together and the revolution because it it has you know its ideology um it it delivers food to everyone. It delivers everything you need. So you're living, living and working with one group of people who will be a mixture of local people and internationals, um, usually in one building, you know, concentrating on that work mm -hmm. and, and together. And so there's a lot of camaraderie. Everyone's come. Of course, everyone has, everyone, you know, no two people have exactly the same politics. Everyone has very different politics and personalities and things. Um, but you, you know, you live, and cause you have, you know, first, when I started leaving the building by myself to just go into town, uh, I was very, you know, I was, I was very much concentrating on security. I was checking if anyone was following me, looking at the cars coming and going. And I was, you know, I was, I was, uh, scared. Mm -hmm. um, um, but the, the city I'm in, of course, there's been no violence in it for two years. There was the only thing that happened was that the Asaish, who take care of the city, had to remove a Syrian regime group, and there was a street battle for a few days. But they very, very, uh, with great precision, removed them from the city. Mm. Um, now, you know, they're very good at what they do. And so actually, um, in terms of daily life, you know, going to town, you buy things, you go and meet other people. Um, it's very safe. Um, and you, your, your food and everything is taken care of. Um, one, of one of the slightly worrying things is, is realizing that the water supply is not a given. Um, because within the first two weeks that I was here, you know, you turn the tap on and nothing comes out and you get this huge reality check and this whole understanding of just exactly what it means to have a tap with water coming out of it and all of the infrastructure and work that goes into actually achieving that in a city 
it's just enormous and of course we take it all for granted and we really shouldn't um one of the things that i didn't like in europe is just the amount of complaining that everyone seems to do i don't think you've been to australia take a shot <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have, we have two tribes in Australia. I mean, um, two post-colonial yeah. tribe, post you know settler tribes. There's one tribe which says somebody should do something about that, and then we have the Gunner tribe. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. We do look to authority to provide the uh, essentials, and if they don't provide it, we complain. Basically, what's it like there? Um. I mean, the, the ideology is that the people should take control of the society, so they shouldn't look to authority. And indeed, there isn't authority for them to look to. Mm. Um, but there's, you know, there's still the confusion amongst the people. They've come from a society where they've been horribly oppressed, you know, especially the Kurdish uh, ethnic group. And um, trying to in, uh, make them understand that they can go and take control of their money and their society and their resources and do things. And there's a lot of it happening, of course. I mean, groups are continuously popping up from the people and just solving things and changing. And, you know, it is, it is being successful, but there's still a lot of work to do. In terms of complaining, I'm in a little village at the moment, and people are incredibly happy. I've said this before. And when people are incredibly happy, there's, it, it changes everything. You know, as long as there's water and there's electricity, because those two things are very necessary in people's lives and they will get worried, of course, and, and rightly so if they don't have them. But when when that's there, they really just don't seem to. And they, they know what Europe's like. They know the physical things that are available in Europe, the, the material wealth. Um, by and large, they're not. Don't seem to be. They're not fussed about it. Their houses are empty because they don't. They don't care. Mm. You know, they're just like. And I had a nice um, experience. Uh, was it yesterday? Oh my god! Yeah, I think it was yesterday. I lose track of time. Um, I've been in this little village three months now, and I wandered down to the centre, um, and there's a couple of guys that I've got to know there, they were sitting outside the little car mechanic shop and you know it's not productivist here, so people, you know, they're not actually doing very much work, they're just sitting around at work, chatting to people and, and sort of basically socialising and I went over and chatted to them and uh, of course they were very lovely as always, they're about 20 years old and uh, one of them it turns out works for the local municipality, so this is, this is Anis, this is the local government, if you like, and he's he's twenty year old guy, loads of energy, really, really positive. He's, he's very wonderful, um, and he said, "Well, come down." And we went down to the um, municipality there, and I had a, a chat about what they do. And of course, that that's the place where people go if their water supply is broken, if a pipe's broken, or their the the generator's broken, and things like this. Um, and, you know, I was, I was there for a couple of hours chatting to them about things. No one else came in. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then it turns out, I'm not sure where this story is going, by the way, but I'll, I'll go for it. <laughs> <laughs> turns, um, that, um, yeah, no, I knew what I wanted to say. So this 20-year-old man mm. 
and, and his friends, they both said, because I asked them this a lot, do you want to go to Europe? And they both said, no, no, we don't want to go to Europe. Because here there is society, Chivak. Chivak is the Kurdish word. They happen to be Kurdish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the village, I mean, has uh, Arabs and, and Kurds. And they're all, you know, it's a very, it's known as a very good village. Everyone gets along nicely. And then, again, this very young man who said, no, I'm not interested in going to Europe because there's no society. And this amazes me. You know, I think about what I like, was, what I was like when I was 20. And I didn't, mm. didn't have it. These, this sort of political knowledge, if you call it that, or sensibilities, I don't know. Well, and the people in... Sorry? Oh, I'm just saying, I think you obviously have hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, we're a collection of individuals. You've got a society. Yeah. That's, that's the difference. That's, that's, and they understand that that is, the, that is what makes life worthwhile. It's not the things that you accumulate or the personal prestige. You were talking about ego and the fact that you've never seen a group of people that have got such little ego and there's mechanisms by which you can actually control that situation. But you have a society, a functioning society which is based on active participation. No central authority, exactly. but active participation of the people involved in that society. And that's the revolution, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I mean, I think in everyone's opinion, you know, you've got it there. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting because we have all these sayings and we all, I think we all know that material wealth doesn't make you happy. But do we really believe it? Um. And now, because I've got it in front of me every day, these people with just nothing, and they're just all so much happier. And, you know, <laughs> I have to believe it now. Um, that, that, that guy as well, he also organised defence for the local school, which is a frightening concept for me, the fact that soldiers would have to defend the local middle school. <laughs> But, um, yeah, no, as a 20-year-old, he organises that defence. And, of course, we went to the school afterwards, and there's, there's all these kind of 10-year-olds running around. Um, and it always reminds me that there is a real society of real people here when you see all the kids going to school in the morning, mm. you know, with their old rucksacks on and all kind of bundling off through the streets. It's a lovely sight to see. And... Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully I'll be popping down to the middle school there to do some English conversation for them because actually they have a teacher who speaks English there and is teaching English. So they learn they learn their own language when they're young. Uh, and I think up till about 11, 12, they're learning their own language and then they learn one of the other languages because, you know, one of the, one of the important things in here is that the... The Kurds, especially, it was illegal for them to speak Kurdish. They were literally being arrested and thrown in prison for years just for saying a word in Kurdish. Mm. Um, and so now at school, there's three main languages, Syriac, Arabic, and, and Kurdish, and, and uh, children all learn a, a combination of these languages. But, of course, they need to learn English as well because um, they need to talk to the world. I'm always, I'm always telling them this, you know, not forgetting the terrible, violent reasons why English is so uh, ubiquitous everywhere. But, um, yeah, to talk to the rest of the world. Mm. Getting back, I'm interested Um, in exploring something which I think a lot of listeners would find hard 
to envisage. Now, you're talking about this 20-year-old mechanic who works for the... Is it... Would you describe it as a municipal authority? How does it function? How does the essential infrastructure like the water and the electricity and the roads um, continue to function? Uh, is, is it is there some, some type of centralised authority or is it more a mechanism via which different um, substations or municipal uh, areas uh, coordinate activities? How, how does it work? Because a lot of people say, look, what we're talking about is fine in a little village somewhere where everybody knows each other, but these type of concepts can't work in a society with towns and villages and cities, you know, a a society of five million people. Yes, so I don't have uh, a lot of that information. What I'm actually going to do for next week, I'm going to try and get the local municipality to send someone. Mm. Uh, to have a chat for next week's conversation. That'll be interesting. So, But I do, there are some things to say about it. Ideologically, everything is supposed to be small scale, and that includes the infrastructure as well. So each village has its own water pump and its own well. Um, it also... Um, uh, there are big power stations, and there is a mains electricity supply to the house that I'm in at the moment but also everywhere has its own diesel generator as well. And this is not necessarily something that we want. Uh, Obviously, diesel generators in every small community is an absolute disaster for the environment. And no one actually wants that because it's a, this is one one of the other things about, you know, being here. It's so noisy all the time because, uh, it's just these huge diesel generators just thumping away. I mean, they've turned it off at the moment, but you'd hear it now if they turned it on. Um, the heat, the constant noise really add to the level of stress here. Mm. Um, the local municipality, I mean, again, it's a non-productivist society. So the mu- local municipality is not doing very much. And people are not constantly um, trying to get things at the standard that they are in Europe. I mean, the the roads are being mended. You can actually download uh, from Rojava Information Centre. They produce the yearly uh, accounting reports from the revolution. And it's broken down into quite a lot of detail. The money that comes from... Uh, I think it's mostly uh, oil sales Mm -hmm. and how that has been used. And you'll see one of the big things that they've been doing is fixing the roads. And as a driver myself, um, it's it's got a lot better over the last two years. I mean, really, there's a lot of nice, smooth, flat roads now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's interesting, actually, because before you had to drive super slowly because there just holes everywhere, you know, and you'd, you'd only get about a kilometre before you had to replace your suspension if you drove over it at any speed. Now they've put some roads in, they've had to put speed bumps everywhere to make sure the traffic doesn't go too fast. So you're now going over speed bumps all the time. You're listening to the 10-part series with the Civil Diplomacy Unit of the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. 
We're having a conversation with Tekerson, who is uh, a member of the Civil Diplomacy Unit. This is part of the 3CR Acting Up series. My name's Joseph Toscano, and the producer of this program is Kelly Whitworth. You mentioned oil. Is that the main way to get foreign currency to keep things functioning? So um, the north of Syria um, has a lot of oil in the ground. And when it was part of Syria uh, more than 10 years ago, they used to take all the oil from the oil fields. They used to take them into a, a city that they'd custom built for the management of the oil, and then they used to truck it down to Damascus. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the revolution happened, the revolutionary area included that management town. And so the revolution, and, and everyone left, all the managers and their families left to go um, down to uh, the other nation state parts of Syria. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the revolutionary People moved into that town and took over the oil delivery. So yes, I think a lot of the money we're selling we're selling our oil at ten percent of the market price at the moment, um, and I think it does comprise quite a large income. We produce quite a lot of wheat. Unfortunately, that's pretty much the only thing that the fields produce. Uh, we give a lot of that free to Damascus because people are starving down there. I'm told, and mm-hmm. the friends give it to them. Um, and I think some of that wheat may get sold to Bashir as well. That information, by the way, comes from my revolutionary education of 40 days. Um, one of the Havals came in and gave us uh, education on the economic situation in the revolution. Is, is, so this, is, that, is this when you lived communally initially? Is that correct? Was that part of that communal living initially? Uh, well, it is, but that that forty day revolutionary education was mm. everyone going somewhere else and being in a school right. for forty days and then coming back. But you're absolutely right. Every revolutionary group um, has to do several things ideologically. What ideologically? One is the tech mill. This very nice sitting around together, uh, concentrating on being humble and and offering criticisms and positive help to each other. The other thing is that, you know, the the, the Hevals always say uh, this is an ideological revolution. Once a week, we sit around and we read to each other and we discuss it afterwards. And this happens in a variety of different languages. So, yeah, once a week, you know, I'm sitting there and they'll be reading. It doesn't necessarily have to be Abdullah land groups read you know, they choose which books they read. But uh, I think it was Dolochelan that said uh, a revolution is just a very big uh, education system. He said something like that. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. placing education very high importance there. So, yeah. Mm. So you're saying there are people coming across. Um, what type of skills are they are they bringing in terms of um, are the skills there necessary to have a functioning health system or are there things lacking because you've only had a a 10-year period to actually create the education facilities you need to pass on um, 
expertise to a, a younger generation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's actually quite a short period. Um, you know, and I've, I've maybe mentioned before, I'm involved with the universities quite a bit. And uh, the four-year courses have just emptied out with a lot of engineering and stuff, as you might expect from a population that's been so oppressed and so excluded from society and forced to just grow wheat, basically. Mm. Um, engineering is, is lacking uh very much uh management and things like this so i mean if if people do want to come here and they have engineering skills or management skills um that would be very very welcomed um they would be very happy for people to come here with those sorts of things mm. uh, yeah and you know when you when, so after two weeks of me working in journalism here i'm a computer programmer by trade um a lot of Land Rovers turned up at two o'clock in the morning outside the house where I was living. And a lot of people got out and came upstairs. And uh, you always keep your bag packed here, you know, because you don't know what the situation be. So, you you know, you can you can get out, out of bed, grab your rucksack and leave in, in five minutes. Right. And this is, of course, you know, there might be a drone attack, there might be an invasion, that anything could be happening. So you always keep that. Um, and yeah, they said, uh, you know, we'd like to take you on to another project. Would you like to come? And of course, being, being here, it's very, you know, they're immediately obviously very caring people. So it's not, it's not this frightening thing where you get taken away to somewhere and you don't know. It's all, it, there's a great level of trust here because people are so, you know, their hearts are on their sleeve. You can really see that they're nice people. You know? mm. And I went off and they just wanted me to uh, fix some computers, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, this sort of thing happens quite a bit. Um, but my experience has been a little bit different because I've been doing civilian work. If you come here, um, a lot of internationals come here. Of course, they go into the military. And they go into international yuppie And then, you know, there is there is still a war here. There's a front line. Um, and so, you know, if that's what people choose to do, um, a lot of people come here, they want to be soldiers. Um, and they, they, they end up going to the war and being in those sorts of structures. Um, but for every soldier, uh, there's 10 people behind them organizing the infrastructure and things like this you know mm. um and actually the revolution has said we've, we've got more than enough soldiers now what we need is people that can build that's infrastructure right. that's right yeah i think that's what people forget yeah. you've got a society and you've i mean if there are there's certain basic infrastructure certain basic level of health care that people expect or desire maybe not expect but desire you know, it's not pleasant to see people die unnecessarily um, because of lack of um, facilities or expertise in particular areas. Do um, people leave the zone for to to access uh, sophisticated medical treatment, or basically people are just stuck there? Yeah, they do. Um, uh, the Hevals have, have flown people to Europe right. before. Um, and a lot of a lot of people go down to Damascus for um, services there that they can't get in in uh, Annis. So, so um, how, how does the, how does this 
kind of quasi-symbiotic relationship work, you would expect that if they've got... Well, what we're told, all right, what we're told is we expect that if people went to Damascus, they would immediately be arrested and uh, thrown into jail. Is the situation a little bit different? It depends who they are. Um, I mean, it's uh, the SDF arrangement between Syrian regime and ANES is is very... Um, it's not a friendship at all, you know, um, and it depends who the people are. Um, so what's mutual mutual coexistence? No, it's not mutual coexistence at all. It's well, it's um, well, it's hate, you know. The, the, it's it's pure hate between from from the Syrian regime to us. Yes, they, I can they, imagine. We, yeah. we, we've taken some of their territory, mm. and these are arrogant, egotistical men. And they don't like people taking their territory away from them. Right. You know, so, so very, what, why do they allow people to come to Damascus to be treated? Well, they don't necessarily. I mean, right. a lot, a lot of people who have been associated with the revolution have worked in the revolution, or or they just don't like, mm. are wanted criminals in Syrian regime. And if they go there, they'll be arrested. Right. right. Uh, but there's also a lot of people here who have Syrian regime passports have not, uh, the Syrian regime are not aware of whether they have or not been involved with the revolution and they can simply travel. Right. You know, they can go across and travel. Um, whether or not they will get arrested anyway, because there's a big problem, of course, as you as you will expect, with the police are very corrupt in the mm, nation-state areas and so they might just arrest you and then you will have to just pay for your release. Right. They make a lot of money this way, so it's it's very dangerous going down to Damascus for anyone, even just a normal citizen. Mm. And that, you know, that I mean, I know half of the police in Kamishta already because you know it's it's this incredibly interactive, intimate, small scale society, and um, they're just all every single one of them. I've I've never been through a roadblock, and received anything but just the warmest smiles and love you know there mm. i really the the level of corruption of course there is corruption everywhere especially when there is war and poverty to say that Agnes had no corruption in it would be ridiculous um there is always some people you know everyone's we're all human and everyone's got a different personality and a different uh life and difficulties so yeah things happen but uh, generally, I mean, uh, I've been extremely impressed by this mm. society and the constant um, honesty. I mean, the honesty here is incredible. When I walk around, I can leave my car open in the city and no one's no one's going to take it. And when it comes to money or, you know, if you forget to have money at a shop, you can, you can go a bit later. This is... I mean, this is not abnormal, maybe, in a village in Australia. There's all this kind yes, of... Yes, yes. But, I mean, it's, like, really, really impressive here. Just the sheer honesty of everyone. People mm. just don't lie at all. Oh. <laughs> and I say... It's hard to fathom. Here, it uh, seems, oh, everyone uh, <laughs> Hard to fathom. Now, I understand that you also want to talk about the role of words and their um, change in interpretation in the uh, autonomous uh, administration zone. 
Yeah. We've got about 15 minutes, so I think um, if we could look at this, I think this is fascinating. Okay, yeah, let's tickle that one for a bit. Um, I, I don't feel qualified to talk about it. I mean, I've read a lot of philosoph- philosophy books, but um, yeah, let's go for it anyway. So, um, language and its relationship to culture and social construction. Um, so, there are lots of different dialects here. Uh, when it was the Syrian regime times, uh, people couldn't move between cities. And then the revolution came and there was complete freedom of movement. So everyone from Afrin and Aleppo and Kobani ended up arriving in Kamishlo and vice versa. And the people here, I've said to them about, you know, they said initially the Kurdish people, for example, couldn't talk to each other because the dialects were so different. And within three months, I mean, it's, you know, it's, you can't put an exact three months on it, obviously, but they said that they'd started to be able to talk to each other. And um, there are no central dictionaries here. There is not a central authority like the Oxford English Dictionary that defines democracy, that defines feminism, that defines freedom, that defines these things, um, that defines happiness, you know. Um, And when when you ask someone here what a word means, it's very different to when you ask someone what a word means in Europe. Um, in, in Europe, they'll argue about the single definition of it that has been dictated to them by the dictionary. Here, not only does, does do all the areas have different meanings for the words, but they're constantly changing. They're developing with the society. So take, for example, we've talked a lot about the word expert. That The word expert and what that means and how it's going to be defined is all completely buoyant at the moment. Um, and the important words like democracy. Um, and so, yeah, when you ask someone here to define a word, they will ask the other people around them to define it because they don't know the single definition and they're interested in what... and. When, when you're having a conversation, what people will do, which is very difficult for me, because in one sentence, they'll be picking words and thus concepts from three different languages and maybe two or three different dialects into just throwing that into one sentence. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned Kamishlo Karmanji, and it's completely inadequate because they're just going all over the place. And a lot of conversations will be interrupted by, it's not what does this word mean, but it's it's the fact that the people here, because there is no central dictionary or no defined single static language, I believe, uh, or I'd like to believe, or I estimate or guess or something, that this means the people have a consciousness of being involved and owning concepts of democracy at a very basic, fundamental level. Um, that's a huge sweeping statement I just made there. There you go. <laughs> no, no, look, you're looking, you're, looking at practical, you're looking at practical day-to-day interaction and experience and 
working out a working definition for what democracy is, because as you know, democracy is many things. You can have direct democracy, representative democracy, just just goes on and on. So obviously what they're doing is, to a significant degree, uh, a type of um, direct democracy where they're actually making, well, they're making the decisions about how they live, whether they produce yeah. things, how they produce things. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's democracy in action. And obviously that's why the the standard definition wouldn't wouldn't stand up in a country which no. is, well in a zone or an administration zone which is in flux which is, which which has changed. Do you think there'll be an evolution of a language, uh, a new language? As you said, there are many many different groups now in this uh, zone. It's not like they're all Kurds anymore. Well. I mean, it's interesting because I think the I think this fits in to the actual structural ideology as well. Mm. The idea, you know, because remember, um, it's not productivist. Efficiency is not a f- top priority. It's probably not even fourth priority. So the the immediate maybe European response is that oh, we have to have one language because it will be more efficient to communicate. We're not trying to be efficient. Um, and in fact, cities and, in, for example, the local village municipality, just doing things in completely different ways without asking to the next village and the next city, this heterogeneity is a positive thing here. So the heterogeneity of languages and the fact that they're developing different meanings and socially constructing different Realities as, as the society continuously changes and moves forward. Remember, we're not trying to get to a single efficient, correct structure. The actual idea is that it's constantly changing and that groups and dialects and variety uh, is inclusion mm. um, and uh, moral development. And this, this, is, this is the people controlling everything um yeah well, well you use the i word inclusion i mean um, i mean in a western society as you know representative western to us democracy is casting a ballot every three to four years and giving representative power to make decisions for us during that period you've it looks like in this zone things have been turned on their head you don't have representatives yeah. as such what you're doing is you're actually making the decisions and these decisions are decentralized they're not as you said, heterogeneous. Not everybody has to go through the same mechanism in order to survive. Now, can I ask a stupid question? Um, flags. Do you have uh, defining features uh, for the zone? Is there something which defines, apart from, obviously from the physical interactions which you've discussed in the way decisions are made and why things function, but there, do you have any symbols yeah, it's an interesting question. Symbols are super important in terms of identity, aren't they? Yeah, sure are. <laughs> yeah, so the, I mean, in the area that I am, which is majority Kurdish, um, you see the the green, yellow and red colours in quite a lot of places. Um, but there are an enormous number of symbols. Because, uh, you know, as we touched on before and just now, you know, anyone can develop a, a military group with their own flag and just associate with the SDF 
So there is a huge number of them, all with own flags and uniforms. And um, there are, you know, there was a group that just sprung up. They wanted to talk about the curriculum. And so they, they don't go to a central authority. They develop their own symbols and ideas and go to schools and talk to all their friends in schools and universities and, and things happen. Um, so there, there is a proliferation of, of flags. Um, there is the, I mean, I guess the flag I see the most is the Gay flag, the People's Defence Forces. You see that in, you know, even just very nicely in shops, you'll see just the People's Defence Forces. Everyone's very proud of them. Um, and of course, they, 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 those organisations cut across a lot of ethnic groups that are associated with the Gay and have their own identities and, and flags as well yeah but i mean as, as you come into oh i've forgotten what village is but it's one of the roads there's just in, in the middle of nowhere there's these huge poles with massive yuppie flags just fluttering in the wind that you go mm. through and it's very it's very nice to see that yeah mm. and and is there such a thing as a a passport uh which is recognized Ooh. maybe outside the autonomous zone which gives you Passage, like you said, you f- they, fl- they fly people to Europe for a medical, uh, sophisticated medical intervention. That's a good idea. I like that idea. My passport runs out in twenty twenty seven, and I'm gonna if I'm still here, I'm gonna have to make a few decisions when that happens. Um, this is odd to have that bearing down upon me. But look, sorry, the answer to your question is no. no. Um, you know, the, the, the whole infrastructure and laws and everything is just still the same as the Syrian regime. I mean, there's been some there's been some new laws, especially with regards to women, which have been excellent. You know, the dual leadership, where there is always required at least one woman in leadership roles. Um, but apart from that. I mean, I went to, when I went to register my car, I need a Syrian regime identity to do that. And wherever you go, the Syrian regime laws are still in, still in place. I mean, you know, they don't, you can't be arrested for talking about politics to your friend in public anymore. They, they right. won't do that here. They law. You know, that's over. Um, and, yeah, I mean, a lot of the laws regarding the, the, the sexist laws regarding women, of course, are ignored now and new ones. But that, that whole infrastructure is still in place. Um, and it's a Syrian passport that you need to travel. And, and, you know, when people like me go across the borders, which will inevitably be the border with Iraq, we don't travel legally. Um, and getting back across that border when we don't have a stamp in our passport for Syria is, is difficult. If you get caught in Syria, sorry, by the um, regime, it's I think five years in prison or $20,000 to get out. Right. And so you have to be very careful. And when I'm driving around the city, Kamishlo is quite, quite a patchwork. There's parts that are owned by the Syrian regime and sometimes they're not even marked. If you drive into one, then it will be incredibly embarrassing for the revolution because they'll have to do a prisoner exchange to get you out again. Um, and, you know, this has happened. You really have to be careful. People, have, internationals have walked around the city, accidentally got arrested by the regime. And, and 
this is one of the interesting things here. Obviously, when you come here, it's a revolution. And if you can understand a revolution, then it's not a revolution. Um, and so people like me, um, clumsy people like me, we make ideological mistakes and we say stupid things to because we just don't understand people who have incredible ideological understanding and been in this revolution for decades, mm -hmm. 20, 30, 40 years, you know. And the thing is, the attitude, you know, I know I'm one of these people that kicks myself constantly, especially if I make an ideological mistake. You know, I, I say something that is really unacceptable to the ideology here. And I did quite a lot of things. Um, I can't actually remember them at the moment, but, um, but the thing is the people here know that you've come from, you know, capitalism and positivism and, uh, the, the amount of socialization, I mean, it's the, 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 the biggest social mind control system that's ever existed in, in the history of our civilization. So actually they're expecting you to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, after a while, I've realized, because I'm one of these people also that thinks that I'm the only one that's struggling and everyone else is not particularly struggling through life. <laughs> and obviously that's not true. Um, and I, I realized that some of these revolutionaries that are up there on, you know, up on the high for me, these incredible people, and you suddenly realize that they're struggling as well. Mm -hmm. And that everyone's struggling through this. Um, and you get things like activist burnout. People just just collapse after a while from the stress of the revolution, especially if they're staying here in, here in the long term. And it's it's the enormous enormous pressure that we put our, ourselves under as well, because of course we want to contribute. And I mean, the idea that we could contribute to a revolution, I mean, it'd be a lovely thing if if we could achieve it. Um, and they're very lovely here in the meetings. I quite often correct myself when I say your revolution and I don't include myself. myself. Right. Because, yeah, what have I contributed, really, honestly? Um, and they always say, no, it's our revolution. And they're very lovely when they do that. You know? right. uh, yeah. I mean, I dream of actually contributing something. And one of the things that's going quite well, actually, the uh, you may have some things to contribute about this in terms of Australia, actually. The British uh, Teachers Union of 500,000 teachers, there's one of them, um, is currently has a proposal for their next Congress to recognise the universities in Rojava. Right. Now, this would be a, a wonderful thing, you know, and uh, um, is actually my friend who's the um, general secretary of that union that I contacted and managed to organise this. And uh, um, when you actually do something well in this revolution, there's a huge feeling of joy from that. You know, there's a hell of a lot of stress and then something goes well and you, this uh, wonderful feelings of joy, um, mm -hmm. having done these little things, you know. Um, and it's very up and down, the emotions. Yeah, well, it's obviously we've, we've almost come to an end of, of this hour, but, um, you know, there's a lot of disinformation and obviously the point of these conversations is to try to put forward the facts on the ground there in the autonomous uh, zone. Obviously, it's, it, it's a learning situation for us in Australia and the rest of the world, but uh, if, we can't, if you can't get that message out, 
when you're totally isolated, it makes it exceptionally difficult. So, look, I'm really pleased we've been able to uh, chat with you today. We've got another two programs up our sleeves, and then after that we'll have a little bit of a break, and then maybe if your civil, if the civil diplomacy centre you're part of feels that the conversations are useful, well, we could continue them. Now, you said you want to talk about, what, municipal authorities next week. Is that correct? Well, I'm going to head back down to the municipal authority now and I'm going to try and get them involved. (laughs) Yeah, I've noticed it's hard to get people to come on on air. Yeah, it's really difficult. It's 7 o'clock in the morning here and this is one of the things that is... And people are shy. I mean, actually, there's someone at the municipal authority with excellent English. So um, there's a possibility we can get them on. It would be great if we can. Yeah, well, you can. Look, look, we don't bite. We're trying to learn, you yeah. know. We're trying to learn, yeah. so we're not bite. We're not biting. And if uh, if you don't share, I don't think you'll you'll get anywhere in the long run. You need to share. You need to infect the world with the same uh, virus that's uh, infected the people there. And I'm not talking about COVID nineteen, but the uh, yeah. the virus of uh, decentralisation and uh, direct democracy yeah. and. Uh, all the things that you've been talking about in non-materialist culture. So it's good to be able to mm. talk to you, Tekashin, and hopefully you'll keep well and hopefully we'll be able to um, enter conversation next week. Look, I'll, maybe for the final week, I'm particular. I've been a doctor for 45 years, so I'm particularly interested in the way, you know, public health, you know, system works there, if there is such a thing as a system and, and, and the education system as far as healthcare is concerned because obviously, as you know, not everybody has the same skill sets and it can take years sometimes to develop uh, skill sets in a particular region, and if, you know, and um, I'd be very interested in that. But if you can kind of get one of those uh, revolutionary feminists on, that'll also be uh, interesting. So we'll leave you with those tasks, okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. All right. Well, if we can't do it in this series, we and you decide, you know, the uh, Civil Diplomacy Centre decides it's not a waste of time talking to us. We can, uh, we can, <laughs> we can continue. We can continue in in the new year. Um, well, that's great. So when it happens, we can we can dynamically. Jump on it and, and yeah. the conversation. Yeah, I, I'm not, I don't. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to put you in a straitjacket. I'm just saying there are things we haven't looked at that are oh, really no, useful. Exactly yeah. Do, so. All right. Well, look after yourself and uh, get yourself a new coat. I think the one you've got is a bit threadbare. I, I could hear you shivering at the end of the microphone. Yeah, <laughs> I know you are. I could hear. I could feel it. The vibrations. All right, all the best and all the best to everybody there and uh, thank you for uh, enlightening us about what's going on. That's great. Thanks.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.